All right. Good evening. How you guys doing? Woo! No matter where I'm at, whether I'm speaking to youth or adults, whether it's in Chandler or Canada, whenever I say how you doing, Christians say, "Woo!" <laughs> guys doing good? There we go. All right. How many were here Sunday? Yeah. So right about here, Michael Irvin sat. Yep. Um, and it was, it was amazing. How many enjoyed it? All right. Well, we had, uh, we had an amazing time. Over 8,000 people were on campus Sunday. Um, those who parked in Zeus probably realized that already. But we had just an incredible time. Over five services here, two services out in Santan. But more important than anything else, over 55, or 55, 60 people accepted Jesus Christ for the first time this Sunday. And that is why we do Friend Day. That is why we do Friend Day. This Sunday is important. This Sunday is important. We've got a series called Offensive Parenting. And this is just a series that gives us an opportunity as parents, as future parents, as grandparents to get ahead of the game. Um, And so I want to encourage you, please, please, please take these cards. There's some in the back. There's some out at the information table. And please give these to your friends. Now, don't be judgmental. Don't look at all your friends going, yeah, you need one of these. Just give them, give them to everybody, okay? Put them on the door frames um, inside the community because this is a, an incredible opportunity um, for people to come and hear not only great strategies about what it means to get ahead in parenting, but also ultimately hear about the love of Jesus Christ. A couple announcements tonight. Number one, next week is August 6th. We will finish the Genesis four-week series. And obviously, we're just doing four topics. We're going to be talking about the Tower of Babel. So make sure you come next week. Bring a couple friends. The very next week on the 13th, we're doing a rest day. Okay? There is no programming here on the 13th. And then on um, August 20th, we're starting our 15-week fall series going all the way through Christmas. And we're going to be talking about the end of the world. We're going to be talking about Revelation. And so we're going to be walking through that um, bit by bit. And this is going to be an opportunity for sure to bring some of your friends, bring some of your enemies, all that kind of stuff. You definitely want to be here um, for that series. A couple other announcements. Oh, and next week, um, I will not be here because I will be at Haruma. How many here are going to Haruma? Do we have any of the August team going? (laughs) Woo! All right. Do we have any of the other teams here that already went to Haruma? Anybody? All right, very good. Well, we've got a team of about 25 heading to Haruma this Saturday night. So we're just going to ask that you pray um, for the team, um, pray for team unity, and pray that you give us, um, that God gives us clarity as we're presenting the gospel over at Haruma, as we're spending time with the orphans, as we're doing some work projects, we're going to be teaching, doing a summer camp for the high school students over there, and really just come alongside Mama and, and really helping out. It's going to be an incredible time. If you have never been on a mission trip, whether it's Haruma or India or, or Jamaica, I want to encourage you. What an awesome opportunity for you to step out in faith. And I can't tell you how important it is um, to be out about God's business and to be telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's such a powerful way. And we can also do that right here every second Saturday. So I want to encourage you to do all those things. And then we've got a couple... Um, Things coming under the student store or the student store, the bookstore. Genesis, the Genesis record is going to be available tomorrow. Um, this is a great book for those who really want to dig deep into the whole um, Genesis um, study. It goes verse by verse, gives you scientific data. It's just a great thing for those who like that. That'll be there. And for those of you who just liked um, to read a milkshake, and what I mean by that is read a book that after like two seconds your brain starts hurting. This is a good book for you. It's called Starlight and Time. We're also going to have that in the bookstore. But a lot of the things that we've been covering over Genesis um, will be in these books. So if you're interested in that, that'll be available at the bookstore. All right. So tonight we're going to be talking about the Genesis flood, Noah's Ark. And if you didn't get one of these on your way in, um, we have some of those in back. So if you just want to hold up your hand, we can get these out, out to you. But these are just, I just decided to do this, give you something fun to look at. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 5. And so far, weeks 1 and 2, we talked about 
we talked about um, the whole idea of Genesis chapter 1, the first five words, in the beginning, God created. So we talked about God has been there since the beginning. In the beginning of everything, God was there. Not only was he there, um, he was active. He created. We talked about the six days of creation. And on day one, anybody remember God created? Oh, you guys got to be, come on, where's my woohoo crowd? On day one, God created? Light, very good. On day two, he separated what? The waters, which created sky. Very good. On day three, he separated the waters, which created what? Land. And on the land grew what? Vegetation, all that kind of stuff. So those were our backdrops. Day four, he filled days one's backdrop. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, and what we call outer space. Day five, he filled that second backdrop with, with the birds in the sky and the, the fish of the sea. And on day six, the day that matters most to us, he created animals, all those creepy crawlers that go on the ground, and of course, man and woman. And on day seven, God did what? Rested. Very good. And at the end, God said it was Good. And when he looked at man and woman, he said it was very good. All right. So last week we talked about this whole idea of Garden of Eden and how man and woman were placed in the Garden of Eden. And God gave them a choice because we talked about the difference between religion and relationship. And within relationship, you have to have this choice. You have to have that option to love or not to love. And so God, in the middle of this vast garden, places one tree. And said, you cannot, you cannot eat of this tree. You can do anything else in the garden. You just cannot eat of this tree. And eventually, Adam and Eve, through the temptations of Satan, fell victim um, to one of his three classic um, temptations. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life. And actually, Eve fell to all three. And so when um, they ate of the tree, sin came into the world. And from that point on, we have needed some kind of Savior. We needed someone to save us from the penalty of sin. And from that point on in um, Genesis 3, 15, all the way until we get to the cross, we have a thread going through the entire Old Testament that talks about this coming Messiah, a Hebrew word Messiah or the Greek word Christ. We have this coming Messiah that will come and one day cover that gap, cover that sin for us. But even with that, even though Jesus died on the cross and he rose three days later, we still have that, that choice. We have that choice to either stand against God and reject him or turn our lives over, repent, and turn our lives over to him. Well, as we said, we cannot go through all of Genesis in four weeks. The idea of the the Genesis Summer Series was to hit four topics that skeptics like to go after, that people have doubts about. We talked about the whole creation thing. We talked about sin and the serpent. Well, today we want to dig into Noah's Ark, and we want to talk about the flood. Now, I need to apologize right off the bat. There is no way in God's creation I can go through the flood and the ark in one session. Okay, so we're going to try to hit some of the major topics. We're not going to be able to go through all the scientific facts. However, that's why we have these books available um, in the bookstore. So let's go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 1 and 2, talk about the creation, one creation. We have Genesis 1 that talks about the creation sort of in a, in a floodlight. It, it just gives a, a, a vast description of creation. Genesis 2 takes that floodlight and turns it into a spotlight and really focuses in on the sixth day of creation, mainly um, what happened with man and, and all that. Genesis 3 talks about sin and the fall. Genesis 4, which we're not going to talk about tonight, talk about Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, um, we, we learn um, that um, um, Abel um, brings God a good offering. Cain doesn't. Cain gets mad. I'm really going fast here. Cain gets mad, murders um, Abel. And so we have this whole story of, of Cain and Abel. Um, then we get to Genesis 5. And from Genesis 5 through Genesis 11 is basically seven chapters that mainly talk about a table of nations. It basically goes, and here's this person, and this person gave birth to this person. This person lived a certain amount of years. They died, and they get you know, all, all the way down. And throughout this list of generations, every once in a while, God stops and pulls someone out and talks about that person. Okay? So, in chapter 5, we go through these generations, and all of a sudden we stop, and here comes Noah. And we spend about two and a half chapters talking about Noah. 
Okay, so let's look at the end of chapter 5. We go, uh, chapter 5 goes from Adam to Noah, but we, we're going to just go all the way to the end. Verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named his son Noah and said, He will comfort us in labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Hem, and Japheth. Okay, so that stops there, and then all of a sudden God will pull out Noah, and we will talk about um, what happened with Noah, and we'll look at the ark and the flood. So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor for what happened on Sunday. We thank you for the transparency of a football player. We thank you for the gospel that was presented through his story and his testimony. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for those um, who accepted your son Jesus Christ for the first time. And Heavenly Father, I pray for those who did make decisions, whether it was first time or rededications, that um, you will bring people into their lives um, to come around them, to uplift them, to encourage them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the opportunities that this church provides um, for places like tonight where we can dig into your word. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go on tonight and we dig into your word that that you take away all distractions, um, that you give us clarity, that we can see your word exactly how you want us to see it. And we'll give you all the glory. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Chapter 6. And before we get going, I found this on the internet. I thought it was pretty funny. It says, all I will ever need to know I learned from Noah. Number one, don't miss the boat. Number two, remember that we are all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Number four, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone might ask you to do something really big. Number five, don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. Number six, build your future on a high ground. Number seven, speed isn't everything. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Number eight, always travel in pairs. Number nine, remember the ark was built by amateurs following God. The Titanic was built by professionals mocking God. And number 10, no matter what the storm, when you are with God, there's always a rainbow awaiting. Oh, that's pleasant. All right, so... Noah's a crazy character in the Bible. He's one of those characters that, whether you grew up Christian or you grew up really not knowing anything about the Bible, you, you heard of Noah, and you heard of this ark. And if you grew up in church, um, you heard the stories, you, you, you saw the, for some of us, you saw the flannel graphs, and you saw all those cool things, and you learned about Noah, and you learned about the ark and the flood and all the animals and all that kind of stuff. And at some point in your life, you probably stopped and went, man, that's weird. Here's Noah and all the animals on earth in a floating zoo while the entire earth was engulfed in, in water. And for, for some of us, we went, oh, that must be myth. You know, my parents told me other things that were real and I found out that wasn't true. And so this probably is one of those things. And And for some, we never flip it back around. We never dig into it and go, all right, is that really true? We just go, okay, that must be myth. That must be allegory. That must be uh, symbolism for, for, for something. God must be teaching us through a story that really isn't true. And not only is it not true, um, it seems scientifically impossible. And I'm going to be honest, I was there for a long time. I, when, I, I, when I was going to church... Um, and I started going to church again um, when I was a senior in high school. And to be honest, I started going because the youth group was fun. I came to a friend day at youth group, and I, I loved it. I came for the social pieces of it. I came for the, the, the crowd breakers where you get pie thrown in your face. Well, actually, where I watched other people get pie thrown in their face. And, and it was fun. And, and I heard the stories, and I heard the pastor preaching, and, and I went, okay, that's cool. And there were some applicable things in my life. But to be honest, 
throughout high school, college, um, even in the first several years of marriage. And can I be flat out honest with you? Even in the first several years as a pastor, there were parts of the Bible that I purposely just overlooked. Because I didn't want to dig in and go, gosh, is that really true? And Noah's Ark was one of those. God, is that really true? One guy and his family built a boat in the middle of nowhere, and all the animals came to him. Did he have like a flute? I mean, what, what was it? And I, and I tried to picture it. Well, tonight I want to really focus in on this Noah guy. And we're going to dig into the flood and we're going to dig into the ark and, and talk about the feasibility of both those happening. But sometimes as we read through the Bible, we tend to get sidetracked. And it happens a lot in Genesis. And to be honest, as we get into the fall, it happens a lot in Revelation. We'll get sidetracked with all these crazy things happening. And we totally bypass the absolute message that God is trying to give us. And, and so I Hold your place here in Genesis chapter 6 and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Many call it the, the hall of fame of those who followed God. These are the greats of the great of the great. Um, these are the ones that the flannel graphs were made for. Hebrews chapter 11. And it walks through and it starts out now. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then Hebrews 11 goes on down a list of the ancients that by faith, and the literal meaning of by faith here in Hebrews means God enabled. The list of people that by faith did incredible things. And we look down the list, by faith able... By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac and Jacob. By faith, Joseph. And by faith, Moses. And it goes on and on and on. And you see a list of the greats of all time. By faith, God enabled them to do things that, that we still talk about. And I looked at this list. I remember looking at this list when... I, when I was young and going, wow, I could never be an Abraham. I could never be a Noah. I could never be a Moses or a Rahab for more than one reason. I could never be any of these people. God, how could you use me? And then when I got older and I really started digging into that Hebrews chapter 11, I started realizing that every person that God enabled to do great things, I started looking at the list and going, oh my goodness, there's a murderer, a prostitute, an adulterer, a drunkard, a liar. All these greats in the Bible did things that were horrific at times in their life, were so unfit to do things. And yet at some point in their life, they realized that I can no longer do this on my own. And whether they were a prince or a fisherman, didn't matter. At some point in their life, they turned around and they got on their knees and they said, God, use me. God, use me. And God took them out from the palace or out from the cave and they did incredible things. So I want to look at Noah, but as we do this, we always want to put ourselves in their sandals. Whenever you read the Bible, you want to take a breath and go, all right, what would it have been like to be Noah? What would it have been like to be Noah's wife? What would it have been like to be one of those people standing on the outside looking in? Hebrews chapter 11, as it talks about by faith, verse 7, it says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. Now, remember the definition of faith in verse 1. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. Second Peter, chapter 2. Just a little bit to your right. Second Peter, chapter 2. Verse 5. 
Actually, we'll go back to verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, and listen to what it says about Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. Here's what I like about Noah. Noah was commended for his faith. Noah was commended for his faith, allowing God to enable him by faith, being humble enough to realize that it's all God's and it's not about me. But not only that, he was righteous. We'll find out as we read through Genesis that that Noah was found to be righteous. He walked with God. He stayed on the path. He lived a life worthy of the call. But the third thing that's not often talked about is Noah had incredible vision. Noah had vision. And as we look in the church today, and and as God is calling you to your different ministries, and every person sitting in here, by the way, has been called to do something extraordinary. For some of you, God is already enabling you to do those things by faith. For some of you, you're still sitting back. But when God calls you to do something, he always gives you incredible vision. Remember, wisdom biblically means to see things the way God sees them. And and Noah had incredible vision. Here's 10 principles of vision. Number one, a reality of conditions that do not, or a reality of conditions that do not now exist. Noah believed what yet or what did not exist yet. So Noah, Noah was able to look ahead. The whole idea of the, the parenting, offensive parenting, is to be able to think ahead. Okay? Noah had vision to see things ahead. He wasn't just reactionary. Number two, vision always entails change. That's a hard one. Vision always entails change. Noah was ready and willing to absolutely turn his life upside down. He was willing to change. And for a lot of people, especially the church, and I was this way for many years, I resisted change. I like it this way. It's comfortable. It's comfortable in this room. I can spread out. You know, and and we resist change. Another principle of vision is, vision is always God-given, never man-created. Noah allowed God to bring him his vision. Number four, vision always focuses on what others think is impossible. Ask any of Noah's neighbors and they would have said, that's impossible. What's rain? Five, vision always involves risk. And it always invites criticism. I'm not just saying this because I'm employed here at Cornerstone and because I've known Lynn a long time. Can I tell you, your senior pastor does things that are risky for God. Can I tell you, bringing Michael Irvin here was not necessarily comfortable, and it did invite criticism. Vision always involves risk. Six, vision always makes rooms for God's known will. Noah knew God's will for man, and he preached it. Seven, vision should not get derailed by fads, trends, and methods. Noah never altered God's blueprints. Eight, vision never acquiesces to the status quo. Despite his occasional discouragement, Noah never gave in. Nine, Vision must never be sidestepped by human tradition over biblical truth. There were no shrines in the ark. Ten, vision, details of vision must never be set in concrete. No one ever ran ahead of God to a conclusion. Rather, he waited for God to speak. As we go through this, I want you to keep these things in mind. Noah was righteous, he had faith, and he had incredible vision. Because as you put yourself into his sandals, I want you, as every word we read, to go, would I have reacted that way? Do I react that way now? So let's go ahead and dig in. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of the humans um, were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of the humans and had children by them. There were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the um, the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's stop there because there is a whole lot there and we can't cover all that today. Sorry, Nephilim fans. But basically, those first eight verses talk about... um, how the earth became increasingly and incredibly wicked pre-flood. Men and women increased, animals increased. No one knows how many people lived on the earth. There's stats that say, well, maybe there was about 10,000 to 20,000. And there's also stats that say there could have been up to 6 billion current earth population. No one knows how many people were on the earth. We do know there were a lot of people and that the hearts of men were wicked in every sort of way. Again, I apologized early on that we can't hit every hot topic. Um, We can stay after and talk about that. But briefly, as you look at the Nephilim, because a lot of people go, whoa, what's that? (laughs) Okay. Most likely, biblical scholars believe that the Nephilim were, were angels, fallen angels, demons, that's what fallen angels mean, who had either possessed human men or in and of themselves as angels took on form of men and ended up um, laying with women and having children. And these children were a race of giants, okay? Sort of this half God, third God, whatever, half God, half man type thing. Okay, so most biblical scholars think that is what it is. There are other explanations that we really can't get into tonight, but the Nephilim, just let it be said, were not a great group of people. And so throughout the earth, there were incredible, incredible, incredible sins happening over and over and over again. Man's heart was wicked. And God said, you know what? We have got to redirect this. Okay, and so God did. And he found favor in one person named Noah. Now, one other thing before we hop into Noah and the flood, because that's really what we want to talk about tonight. When it says, a lot of people stick on this, um, when the Lord said he regretted making mankind. And, and if, you look at the, if you look at the wording there um, in the original Hebrew, it, it meant that he was sorry for what had happened or what was happening within mankind. He was, he was not regretting the fact that he made human being, but he was sorry for what had happened, the sin that is in the world, and he was going to judge, yes, because he is a holy God, he was going to judge the sin, but what we don't focus often enough in this story is he was going to provide salvation, and the ark became salvation. So as we keep going, let's look at verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, Shem, um, basically we, don't have, we won't have time to go through this, but Shem, as we look into later um, chapters in Genesis, is where we get the word um, Semite from, Shemite. Okay, so if someone's anti-Semite, they're anti-Shem. So basically, um, the race that would, would eventually be known as the Semites or the Jews, the Arabs, all came out of the line of, line of Shem. Noah's a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark out of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. And look how, look how exact he is here. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 
50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all the life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So how many humans were in the ark? Eight. You are to bring in the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything God, or just as God had commanded. So hop into the sandals. You're Noah. You're living a, a life. You've already been on the earth for many hundreds of years. And all of a sudden, you get this command. I'm going to destroy everything. Mankind is wicked, which Noah probably knew. I'm going to destroy everything that has the breath of life in it. That would be humankind. That would be all the land creatures. That does not count the water creatures. And Noah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark and I want you to make it huge. Now everybody, if you have one of those um, handouts, look how big that ark is. Look how big that ark is. You see the big 747 that's in there? Dinosaur, the animals. A ship that size hadn't been replicated until much later in human history. Imagine getting the blueprints for that. Now, by the way, a cubit, when you look in the Bible, a cubit is a measurement from your elbow to the point of your middle finger. That is a cubit. Now, cubits change per person. Often, cubits would be measured by the king. Whoever the king was, that was the cubit you used. But this was a general cubit. anywhere between 17 and 22 inches. Okay, and a span is about anywhere between 7 and 10 inches. And so can you imagine as God is giving the cubits for this monstrosity? And Noah's sitting here going, just <laughs> could you imagine his eyes? Could you imagine as Noah walks in and he tells his wife, Oh, by the way, guess what I get to do? Now, I want you to take it a step further. When God says, build an ark, what do you think Noah's first question might have been in his head? What's an ark? <laughs> There's a very good chance Noah might not even have known what a boat was. There's a very good chance that Noah might not have known what rain was. And yet, verse 22 is probably the most important verse that we're going to talk about. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So let's keep moving on. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. So just so that doesn't confuse... Every single animal or every single head, kind, we'll get to that, he had to bring two, one male, one female. But then the clean animals, he needed to bring an additional amount, okay? What is a clean animal? What is unclean? You might have seen that in the Bible and gone, well, what does that mean? If you look at a Leviticus 6 or Leviticus 11, it will give you a whole list of what is classified as clean and what is classified as not. Here's a basic list. Clean animals or land animals that you could and have of divided hoofs, such as cattle, deer, goats, sheep. Um, and then unclean animals would be land animals that, that do not chew cud and do not have a split, such as um, pigs, dogs, cats, horses, donkeys, rats, etc., etc. Okay, so he had to bring two of every kind of animal and then an additional of clean animals. 
Seven days from now I will send rain on earth, and for forty days and forty nights I will wipe, wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that God commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on earth. Okay, let's stop there. Okay. God first issued the command and said, In 120 years, I will be sending the flood. Noah, no one knows how long it took him to build the ark. Um, He probably didn't start right away. Um, But it probably took a good 50, 60, 70 years, most theologians believe. Imagine dedicating your life for 50, 60, 70, quite possibly maybe even up to 100 years, building something that you've never heard of, that you've never seen. Imagine each and every day as it's slowly being built. Imagine what the friends and the the naysayers are saying as they're walking by going, what on earth is this? You are crazy, Noah. Imagine the nicknames. And yet Noah, by faith, did exactly what God told him to do. In the 600th year of Noah's life and on the 17th day of the second month, on the day, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every kind, every wild animal according to its kind, all the livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that had the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then, here's a key verse, then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth and the waters increased. They lifted the ark above the, above the earth. The waters rose and increasingly and great or greatly on the earth, the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose gently on the earth and, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of over 15 cubits. Everything living that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm all over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Incredible scene. Now, a lot of people go, that's impossible. That's impossible. You cannot fit. Even even if it's as big as that diagram says, you cannot fit all the animals on earth. And that's a true fact. The Bible never says that all the animals were on board. And again, none of the sea animals were on board. And then the only animals that were on board were the heads Remember, it says after its kind were the heads of each. So you didn't have um, Dalmatian and Dachshund and Chihuahua. I'm using really small things. But you didn't have all breeds of dogs. You had dog. You didn't have all breeds of lion, tiger, cat. Okay, you, you had only the top, the head of each. Also, the Bible didn't say they were full grown. Scientists, both Christian and non-Christian, have tried to estimate, number one, how big um, the ark was. And with those dimensions, the ark was 2,773,925 feet, cubic feet. That's incredible. And they took every animal, the heads of every kind, and, and found out that there was about eight to 9,000 heads. And you'd multiply that by two for the kinds. And you get about um, 18,000 different animals that were on the, the ark. 
Some were big, some were really tiny. Actually, most of them were really tiny. And scientists figured out that the average size was the size of a sheep. That means in order for the ark to carry out what it was designed to do, it had to fit about 18,000 sheep. It is estimated that the ark was big enough, all three levels, to fit 125,000 sheep-sized animals. In fact, all the animals that had the breath of life in it, not only the clean animals and the unclean animals in its pairs, would only take up half the room on the ark. Not only was there room, there was more than enough room for all the heads of every kind. There was room for the water. There was room enough for the food. There was room enough, obviously, for the eight passengers. That still doesn't make it easy. That still doesn't take away the supernatural. A lot of times as Christians, we like to try to prove things in the Bible by science just to ease our hearts. But that doesn't take away the fact that God can do anything he wants at any time. The Bible clearly says God led these animals to the ark. God shut them in the ark. The ark was covered with pitch. If you look at the dimensions of the ark, it's a 6 to 1 ratio, which most major vessels are still built at a 6 to 1 ratio. You could see that the ship could be turned almost on its side in water and it would ride itself. The ark was literally, I mean, the Titanic boasted it, but the ark was literally unsinkable. It could have withstood almost anything. And so here you have all the animals. You have Noah and his family. Now imagine that scene as Noah sitting there. Could you imagine the fear you would have of the unknown? Hearing what's happening on the outside. Experiencing movement that you would never have experienced before. It's not like they drove around on a car or went in the simulators and understood what that movement was like. Imagine the smell. Think your kid's room smells. Go into the giraffe's room, the hippo's room. Imagine the fear, the darkness. Yes, the ark was more than capable of handling everything that God needed it to handle. Now, what about this whole flood thing? We're not going to spend too much time on this, but there are several theories to the flood. Number one, and you might have heard Lynn talk about this um, during Q&A. Here's the earth. And the Bible, remember how we talked about the sky that we split the waters above and below? There's a theory that above the earth all the way up until the flood there was what's called a water canopy or a vapor canopy and so literally there would have been water above and water below okay the theory is that during the flood as it says the windows of heaven opened and the floodgates from below that the waters from below the earth that naturally kept the earth um, hydrated sprung forth a bunch of old faithfuls and the water canopy unleashed on the ground okay that's one theory now the reason why i say theory is because there's arguments on both sides and as we go through genesis again you cannot be dogmatic about it there are great arguments for the water canopy the water canopy would help explain a lot of things it would help explain longevity of human beings the fact that the sun radiation wouldn't get in it's basically a hyperbaric chamber and the fact that things that lived within that chamber would have grown and lived a long time not only lived a long time but grown to uh, pretty big sizes it would also explain the uh, maybe the topography of the earth would have been a little bit different that the the polar would not or the polar regions would not have been nearly as cold and the, the temperate zone would have been pretty consistent throughout the earth um, it would explain quite a bit of things um, However, there's also arguments against the water um, canopy. The fact that if it did drain, the water would have been too hot and it would have scorched the earth. So it's one theory that happened. Okay, so the Bible just talks about it started to rain and and the water came from the heavens and the water came um, from the ground. There's another theory. And again, I want... There's a theory, this is a, a pretty weird theory, but I thought it was interesting, that at one time what we consider the ocean was actually land. People lived up there. Hello. Okay. And this was all water. And then under land was the huge pocket of water. And when it burst forth, it basically popped. And what was land became ocean. What was ocean became land. Okay. So that's another theory that happened. Okay, there's theories all over the map as to how the flood happens. The Bible says that the floodgates of the deep opened 
and the windows of heaven opened. Okay? And so that's what we're going to go with. All we know is that the floods did increase. It was a global flood. It was not a localized flood. The floodwaters did exactly how the Bible says had to have gone above the mountains. No one is saying that Mount Everest was 29-some thousand feet at that time. Okay? The pressure from the water... The pressure from the water from the floodgates most likely would have compacted mountains, the, um, the ice. A whole bunch of things could have happened um, to produce what we now know um, during the flood. But what we do know is, according to the Bible, the flood did happen. Before the flood, um, the topograph of the earth was probably quite a bit different. There's possibility that all the land was together, what we commonly known as Pangaea, and then after that, the continent started slowly, the continental drift, okay? Um, we do know that after a flood, as it abated and as the floodwaters um, um, reduced, the polar caps would have slowly been filled with ice. And what we see in the earth, about from here to here would have been a habitable zone. Everything else would have been what would have been known as the Ice Age. After the flood, as the waters recessed, the polar caps would have frozen. And for many, many years, hundreds of years, this would have been the only habitable zone. And slowly, as the years progressed, the habitable zone would have got bigger and bigger. And that does follow with history, that most of the civilizations began in this area, and it wasn't until later that we started seeing populations get to here. The other thing that a polar um, ice age would have done would have been the water table would have been a lot lower than it is currently. So a lot of those land bridges that are now currently under the water by 50, 100, 200 feet would have been exposed, which would allow the migration of animals. That's why we have kangaroos in Australia and so forth. So there's a lot of great explanations. Again, I apologize that we can't go through each and every one. I would suggest getting this book. It will help out quite a bit um, with the whole flood narrative. All right, really quick, let's keep going. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock, um, chapter 8, that were with him on the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window that he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. Why would Noah be sending out the birds? Yeah, to know that he's able to open the door and let the animals out and, and not hop into a giant pool. Okay? But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was no water over the surface of, uh, or because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back in to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and then again sent out a dove from the ark. When the dove, verse 11, when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a fresh, freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. How did he know that? Yeah, because the bird had an uh, olive leaf. And the, the crazy thing about the olive leaf, not only did he have a piece of a tree, he had a tree that could only grow at sea level. Okay? So he knew the water had um, receded from the earth. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark, and he saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals, and all of the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came Came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives, all the animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds, everything that moves along the land came out of the ark, one kind after another. All right, so Noah, if you add up all the numbers, was in the ark for about three, about ten days over one year. 
Okay, about 370 days, according to the 360 lunar calendar that they would have used back then. So about 370 days he was in the ark. Okay, incredible, incredible feat, incredible. I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like. Now, again, put yourself into his sandals. The world you left was real tropical, incredibly green. There's a great chance, especially if the water canopy existed, that they didn't see rain, they didn't see cloud, they didn't see, um, they didn't see, have any wind. Okay, imagine that. The world you left was filled with animals, filled with people, trees everywhere. Imagine walking out of the ark now and seeing a wasteland. Hearing the silence. Watching as the animals leave the ark and go. Imagine the feeling as you leave the ark going, Oh my God, what did you get me into? Imagine that feeling. She you put your arm around your wife, you put your arm around your husband, and you go, okay, it's just the eight of us. Can't even field a football team yet. Imagine that first step out of the ark. Had to have been incredible. Imagine feeling the wind on your face. Imagine looking up and seeing a sky that you never saw before, or at least a totally different sky. Incredible. Imagine the memories of the people that were lost. Now, again, the flood and the ark is an incredible story. Scientifically, yes, you can prove that all the animals fit into the ark. You can prove that the ark was buoyant enough to be able to withstand a flood. You can prove that the, fl- the way the floods happened, you can prove that it was a, a global flood. You can do all that kind of stuff, but I don't want you to miss the point. One man named Noah was righteous, had faith, and a vision to do exactly what God told him to do. Year after year after year, nail after nail after nail, building this ark for something that the human side of you had to at least doubt for a second. Listening to everybody laughing at you. What a vision he had. What risk. So my question to you, and and as I look at Noah, would I do that? Can I be honest with you? I doubt it. If God came today and said, hey, you need to build a big boat, I wouldn't know what to do. Could I have been that strong to be doing that for 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 years straight? Could I have withstood all the laughs and the taunts? Even the simple stuff, as animals are coming aboard. Again, I've said this before, I'll be honest with you, the snake I might have not let on board. There, there are certain animals, eh. But Noah did exactly what God told him to do. And God brought salvation to mankind. And a lot of people go, man, God's heartless. How, how could he allow that to happen? How, how, could we, how could he stand by and watch all these people die? And a lot of times that's our human nature coming by, coming about saying, saying, oh man, I can't believe all those people. And yeah, it's heartbreaking. But the death of the people is not the heartbreaking thing. The sin is the heartbreaking thing. Because see, as we focus on that stuff, we often focus on the physical. And we very rarely, even as Christians, focus on the spiritual. We will cry and cry and cry over losing someone physically. But yet when we know someone is dead spiritually, we do nothing. And I'm guilty of that too. It's because I'm selfish. It's because when someone dies physically, I'm separated from them. Me, I'm separated from that person. That's when I have troubles. But as a follower of God, I should be infinitely more troubled that God is separated from them. Because if I'm separated from them, I'll be back again with them if they've turned their life over to Christ. And so as we look at this, we often go, man, it's, it's heartbreaking. Look at all the physical death. It's the spiritual death that we need to be heartbroken over. It's the sin in the world that we need to be heartbroken over. 
God is a just God, and he has to deal with sin. And there will be a time in everybody's life that we will be face-to-face with our Maker. And it's not the physical death we're going to be worried about. It's going to be, are we separated from our, our Maker? 10,000 years into heaven, we're going to forget all the, all the stories. All we're going to know is God. The most important day in heaven on God's calendar is the day when maybe 55 people accepted Jesus Christ. Because that's what's going to matter in 10,000 years. No one's going to remember tonight. It's that spiritual separation that we need to deal with. And Noah is such a powerful figure. I know we're a little bit late. We're going to open it up for some questions. And I know there's some crazy questions out of Genesis. So we'll try to hit as many as possible. We do have a couple runners down here. Any questions out of, out of this? And you're probably flying. Anybody with just... Yes. I've heard it said oftentimes that Noah was a drunk. Um, but I don't... Reading into that story, I don't see where it says that. Do you? It, it happens about a chapter later. A chapter it, later. After, after Noah gets off the ark... Um, we don't know how much time lapsed, but he ended up planting a vineyard. And one night, he had a little bit too much of that vineyard. Okay? And, that, and that would definitely play into some crazy things that happened. The Bible's silent on that. And again, Noah was not a perfect man. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, you were saying earlier that, you know, would you, would you be able to do what Noah did? And I think any of us, if we had a heart bent towards God... And uh, we knew that people were going to hear either job well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew. I think that we would be able to do it. Yeah, you know, and, and, and again, I, it's hard to tell. Um, we have a huge benefit. We have, we have knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit indwelt in us. And when we accepted Jesus Christ as Christians, when we accepted Jesus Christ into our heart, we, are, we were, uh, had the Holy Spirit deposited in us. That is something some of the Old Testament saints would have killed for. Okay? Noah was acting on incredible faith, on things that he had no knowledge of. It's possible, as Noah, if I was walking with God, that I would have been able to do it. But, man, I, I just look at Noah, and, and I look at certain figures in the Bible and go, Look what can happen when one man... Again, it's not that Noah's great. It's that he allowed God to be great within him. And it's those people in the Bible, um, whether they were fishermen or they were a little kid carrying some loaves of bread, that allowed God to move. Those are the stories that are told. It's the junior hire with the sling. God moved. And it's those people that are able to humble themselves enough and remove themselves from the picture enough to allow God to have the greatest glory. That's when the stories are told. So physically and, and just within Noah of himself, yeah, he's just a normal guy, but he, he allowed God to enable him. And that's what just impresses me. And I wish, and I know myself well enough, I fall so often. I fall so often. My thoughts are horrible. I wish I could have faith like Noah did. I try. But man, that was incredible. Yep. Any others? Yes. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. If God gave Noah the measurements to the ark, if a man built an ark today, don't you think God would give him the measurements? The only way a man could do it would be by God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it doesn't say Noah was a carpenter. It said he was a preacher. God gave Noah dimensions for an incredible, incredible task. And Noah just worked and did it. So let's go ahead and pray. And if we have questions after, I'll be right here. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the crazy story of Noah. We thank you for this, this um, narrative called the, the flood and, and what happened. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we see this, that we see you in this story. That we see that you are a patient God, not wanting anyone to perish. That even as you passed judgment, you still gave 120 years for those to turn to you. Thank you for providing a way out. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we look at this story, uh, we just happen to, we have to see Jesus as well and how you provided a second chance for us. Something we did not deserve, but you provided a way for us to be saved by turning our life over to Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go home tonight and as we prepare um, for what's going to happen here at Cornerstone in the fall, Heavenly Father, I, I just pray that you will consistently burden us for those who are separated from you in our community, that we will rejoice for those who turn their life over to you, that you will give us the wisdom with all our might to be able to live a life worthy of the call and to see things exactly how you see them. Heavenly Father, give us the faith of Noah. Give us the faith of Moses, the faith of Abel and Abraham. Give us the faith of those who went before us that were able to humble themselves and allow you to explode. And Heavenly Father, I pray that for those in here tonight, myself included, that might be going, you know what, I don't know if I can do something that grand to realize that they're actually the person you probably will use. That there's not a single person, no matter how young, how old, in this room that you can't do amazing things through. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love and your grace. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for coming tonight. Any other questions for those who want to hang out? I'll hang out for a little bit and, and, and talk. Real quick, for those who are going to hang out, someone did last week ask the question about the whole, how did we go from Adam and Eve to everybody? Wasn't there some kind of weird thing happening there um, called incest? Yes, the answer is yes. And, and that, absol- that absolutely happened. That would have happened for quite a while until um, God finally declared that that was no longer to happen. But that happened throughout the Old Testament.